I'm an economist and I've worked extensively with Paul Collier. So for the first paper that I ever did with him, he was my PhD supervisor in Oxford, I was the first footnote. I'd like to thank Anka for excellent research assistance. So you never know where this leads, is my um, hint for all students. Um, because we've done a, a number of papers and some of you might be familiar with his book, The Bottom Billion, where he um, sort of talks about, you know, those sort of pressing development issues, how he sees them. The book is very readable, but it's sort of based on a decade of research, much of which uh, we've, we've done jointly. Um, but this is more written for the interested public. And this sort of, you can see we're at the Centre for the Study of African Economies. Our outlook is quite different. So even though India and China still have a lot, a lot of poor people, these countries have really had a different development path over the past couple of decades. Whereas a lot of countries in Africa, not all of them, but some of them, have sort of uh, still experienced zero growth rates, and even though growth might be unequal, as we heard, these countries sort of face a much, much more uncertain future to our mind. So the bottom billion refers to the billion people who live in those types of states, states that fail their populations. They fail their populations in terms of security provision and in terms of development opportunities to lift yourself out of poverty. What countries am I thinking about? It's the Haitis, it's the Angolas um, of this world. Where exactly you cut, cut it off is Papua New Guinea in or out? Does it fail its um, citizens? We could sort of debate at length. Anyhow, the book concentrates very much on different um, development traps a country can find itself in. And one of them is the, the, the conflict trap. And I'm going to sort of concentrate on that in, in my talk today. So first of all, all my work is applied statistical work. So to just give you some sort of idea, the um, x-axis gives you the end of the Second World War to today. And then it's the number of conflicts on the y-axis. So Peace Research Institute in Oslo and Uppsala University count the number of violent conflicts worldwide. And as you can sort of see, the sort of total number, so this graph stacks. Yeah? So the different colors just show you what different types of conflict they are. But if you sort of see, they peaked at the end of the Cold War. And since then, uh, even though the media sort of give us a lot of terrible stories about how um, bad the situations in, in Iraq and Afghanistan in particular, the world has become a safer place. Important to, to, to look at. The different colours, as I said, give you different types of violent conflict. So the blue ones, light and dark, are the so called civil wars. There's, of course, nothing civil about them, but they're, they're internal to countries. The yellowy ones are international wars, so between two countries. So that's a really rare form of violent conflict. The red ones are basically uh, decolonization uh, conflicts, and with the independence of Mozambique and Angola, they've sort of, they're, they're none of those any longer. So, the global prevalence of um, civil war is sort of very similar for different regions. Um, so, Africa and Asia have got a lot of conflict, but they also follow the sort of general trend of becoming uh, safer places. 
What about the intensity of conflict? So Priya and Uppsala, um, if you want to do any research on this, um, they provide the, really the best data to my mind. And um, they define um, uh, violent conflict with 25 deaths per year. So there has to be a sort of rebel force that is able to inflict fatalities on the government. If a government goes around and kills its civilian population, that's a massacre or pogrom, but not a civil war. So there are sort of quite strict rules about how they define it, and as you can imagine, defining a civil war and collecting data on it is very difficult. So this is the reason why I rely on experts to, to do it. So the green ones are wars. They produce a thousand battle-related deaths per year minimum. These really big. So for example, the civil war in Northern Ireland is not a civil war in this data set because it only produced 3,000 deaths over, three, um, over 30 years. So the, um, my research concentrates on the wars not on the more minor conflicts. So the minor conflicts are 25 to 1,000, and the wars are 1,000 battle-related deaths or more per, per year. I don't know why this didn't come out, but this is Africa. There's a data set. I leave the presentation here with your organizers, and you can sort of look up some of the um, references. I've listed them at the back. This is just to add up the sort of battle deaths that we know of um, from, from a data set. And this is just to show you that Africa and Asia have had really very bloody um, civil wars. So a lot of people died in, in those 40 years. But of course, wars kill long, long after the fighting stops. You can't get, you know, the, the infrastructure is destroyed. You um, become disabled in the war. Um, your wife died in childbirth, etc. So I've just sort of come out with a few African examples from Angola to the DRC, what sort of, of course they're always rough guesstimates um, how many people died in these wars. So there are battle deaths and total deaths. So the total deaths are through disease. And as you can see, as the percentage of battle deaths, they're very small. So wars kill many, many more people, not through direct violence, but indirect consequences. And of course, war sort of made people homeless. Uh, ref we call refugees people who cross the border, but they're of course a lot of internally displaced persons, these IDPs, these are the dark blue ones. As you can see, recently there's been quite a rise in those. Um, so these are only, these are UN numbers, so this is only what the UN sort of knows about and people the UN uh, looks after. Others are uh, sort of returnees, asylum seekers, etc. So basically, I sort of wanted to give you a quick overview of um, why I think it's a very important topic to research. Now, I don't know how many of you economists um, or do economics as a sort of um, additional studies, but it's not a natural area for economists to become involved in because in the first lecture in economics that you probably heard is a voluntary exchange between people. It's sort of like, I give you the good and you give me the money and at least one of us is better off. So there's no force involved. And of course, with civil war, there's a lot of force involved. But we felt it was a very important part of development to sort of understand why some countries are, are poor because they've got a lot of violent conflict going on. 
of course, when you study civil war, you can look at the onset, you can look at so what makes a country prone to large-scale violent conflict. Once the conflict has started, what makes it go on? These might be quite different processes. And then what happens post-war? So let me just very briefly talk about the onset of civil war and then go to my, the topic that I was invited to talk about, which is post-conflict. We wanted to look at what makes a country prone to civil war. So basically what we did, we borrowed a methodology from the med from medical profession. So for example, if you are the British government and you want to know what could be done about heart attacks in Britain, you can take NHS data of patients or people. You can sort of um, have a one for heart attack and zero for no heart attacks, and you can study the population as a whole, and then sort of look whether the person smokes, takes exercise, what their cholesterol intake is, and then you can crunch all these numbers and find out what factor makes it more likely for a person to, on average, to experience a heart attack, and you'll find out that it's smoking that really increases this, and that informs then public policy makers to put maybe more money into prevention of smoking than into anything else. And this is a little bit how pause in my work is um, with aim to inform policy shapers. So the Department for International Development and the UN and the World Bank have been very interested in this. So the method is regression analysis. To just be really clear about this, it's not case studies. So we look at all countries that I can possibly find data on. And this work um, was very difficult to publish, took a long time. And um, um, so I got a lot of rejections for five years. Nobody wanted to publish this. But don't give up. <laughs> um, somebody will be interested in this. And sometimes people are just sort of worried because it's just so new and different. This paper was then published uh, in the Oxford Economic Papers, and it was the most cited paper in the first quarter of 2010 in, um, in economics. So you can, you know, sometimes you have a slow start. So we sort of look at different, we were totally agnostic about it. So what gives you a risk of, of civil war depends on your history, the economics, the sociology, and maybe your geography of the place. So we just sort of put this all in to regression analysis and studied it. And we found that grievances, which are typically sort of cited as causes of conflict, so people are of a different ethnic group or people are of a different religion or class, not so popular any longer, but used to be very popular, that we find very little evidence for this. But we do find evidence that the level of income and growth and the structure of income are very important. As economists, we are thinking of a rebellion as recruiting and maintaining a private army, because that's what you've got to do if you want to challenge the state, either the centre or secessionist sort of movement. And um, it's a lot easier to recruit people if they're poor, because their, economists call it, opportunity costs are low. Their opportunity costs are low if they've got low income opportunities and if growth has been poor in these countries. And then also if countries are um, more dependent on natural resources, we find evidence um, that that makes countries much more conflict prone. And we interpret this as a sign that natural resources can be used as a source of finance. 
so diamonds are the rebel's best friend. Um, Sierra Leone, Angola went on for a long time because the rebels were able to loot natural resources in exchange or sell them for weapons. But it's not only diamonds, it can be timber in Cambodia, Liberia had a lot of timber, illegal drugs in um, Afghanistan and in Colombia, huge source of income. You can, of course, finance it differently. During the Cold War, you could just go to one of the superpowers, or if you were uh, Renabe and Mesabib, you could sort of go to government um, that didn't like your government, so you got money from South Africa. You can collect it from your diaspora community. Um, Sri Lanka um, has been extremely successful raising money, money abroad to finance um, the conflict. So these are all sort of things that were borne out in our uh, research. What isn't borne out in our research, and it's not only us doing this, but there's quite a few research teams doing this, is that there's no sign that economic inequality, on average, gives you a higher risk of conflict. And when you read Amartya Sen, or other you know, um, fantastic economists, this is one of the first sort of things that they state about conflict. Inequality gives you conflict. It might give you a lot of grievances, and rightly so. Yeah? Um, we heard about you know, very um, um, unequal structures in, in part of India. Um, but you might not be able to finance it. Because this is a really big, um, you know, to become a real challenge for your state, you need to be able to finance it. So you might objectively suffer economic um, disadvantages, but you might not be able to do it. And what I find really interesting in Fritjohn's talk was that he was talking about secessionist movements, that it's the rich that they get that get fed up with the poorer parts. It's the, it's the Czechs who didn't want to be with the poor Slovaks. It's Russia that doesn't want to be with the Kazakhstans of this world. So the sort of idea that inequality gives you conflict is very much uh, based on the sort of idea of it's the rage of the poor, but it might be the rage of the rich uh, who didn't want to be with the, with the poorer parts. It's Aceh in Indonesia where the gas. We live here, we want the income. Um, a non-violent secessionist movement, the Scottish Nationalist Party, it's Scotland's oil. Yeah? Um, that sort of shows you. Um, so there are different forces at work, and on average, it just doesn't uh, bear out in the, in, the, in the statistics. Economic inequality doesn't give you higher risk of conflict. Past conflict makes a country more co conflict-prone, very intuitive, but the good news is not, if the peace lasts longer, um, this risk goes down over time. So let me then talk briefly um, for the last five minutes about the post-conflict challenges that countries face. So being economists, we sort of thought about and we broke the issue down into two different blocks which are obviously interrelated. So um, once you've had a civil war, you are totally on your knees. You know, your infrastructure is destroyed, your human capital is destroyed, people have been um, not only killed but also displaced. Um, so how do you get an economic recovery going and how do you get the risk of a new civil war down? So I'll address these two things separately. Economic recovery. First of all, is there a peace dividend? Once you're on your knees, do you bounce back? Um, that's the question. 
And can international assistance uh, with overseas development aid increase growth post-conflict? Those of you who are economists will know that there's a huge literature on aid and growth. And basically my take on it is aid doesn't do much for growth. It's not that harmful either, but it doesn't do all that much. But maybe in post-conflict situations, that's different. And um, does policy improve growth post-conflict? Maybe there's a new government, a new leaf has been turned over. And so what we've done, we sort of analyse post-conflict societies and we, we find that countries do bounce back. They have on average higher growth rates. And the interesting thing was that we find that um, you can actually assist those post-conflict, let me stress this, post-conflict societies by um, development assistance. However, typically what happens is that donors come in with a lot of money once the civil war stops, and then the effort sort of peters out. But the absorptive capacity is just not there in the beginning. So what should be happening is sort of build the aid up slowly, and then in the middle of the post-conflict decade, really sort of um, provide a lot more aid because that increases um, growth post-conflict. And traditionally, this is not what donors have done, uh, as I just said, um, but this has, been, um, this has been changed. I've done some more recent work with um, political scientists, doctorate student, and a master student of mine. Um, and we sort of looked at, so, if you've ever done any empirical work yourself, you have to make judgment calls on these things. You have to quantify these very difficult processes like civil war. So remember my graphs? There was either war, yes or no. But a lot of wars end, but a lot of violence still continues. It's not at the level that it's war, but there's still a lot of conflict. And about half the post-conflict situations that we looked at have got substantial levels of, of violent conflict. And you do not get this. So what we sort of found, this is for the, um, this was a background paper for the World Development Report 2011, which is going to be on security and, um, and development. And we find that this peace dividend is only at work um, if you really have no further violence. So let me finish then with post-conflict risks. Um, with uh, Paul and I, with a Swedish colleague, Manns Söderbom, sort of looked at um, almost 70 post-conflict episodes, and we found that there's a really, really high risk of conflict recurrence. Yeah? So all the countries that have civil war, um, have had civil war like over the last 10 years, are all countries with a new outbreak, all countries that have previous had, previously had a civil war. Cote d'Ivoire in 2001 was the last country that was new to civil <coughs> war. And that tells you also something if you talk to policy shapers, you really ought to concentrate on those countries that have had a civil war in the past. Because they are very, uh, they face very high risks. So we found, so basically what we do statistically is once the peace breaks out, what, what determines the duration of peace. And maybe once you've had two years of peace, you're much safer, or maybe after five years. Two years is a sort of interesting category because the UN peacekeeping operations are usually scheduled for two years. 
but no, forget it. You really are there for the long haul if you want to intervene in whatever way. There is no safe period during the first decade. Once you're over the first decade, we sort of think then you're just like any other uh, other poor country. <coughs> Growth is important. Uh, it really gets your sort of uh, risks of new conflict down. Um, elections are a very interesting one because a lot of um, suggestions are once there's democracy, once we've done elections, the peacekeepers can go. This is very often being seen as the sort of date of departure. And this is wrong according to our research. It's not that elections are wrong or trying to sort of get democracy going, so don't misunderstand me there. It's got an intrinsic value, but it doesn't help you to stabilize the peace. And then we found that peacekeeping, um, this, say, UN peacekeeping, we didn't have um, data on coalitions of the willing, but UN peacekeeping does make countries safer and it's less likely for war to break out again. And then we sort of find that doubling the expenditure, because that's the nice thing about models, you can just sort of crank through a different number, um, doubling expenditure would reduce the risk quite substantially. When I say doubling peacekeeping expenditure, you probably think it's rather fanciful, but it's only seven billion US dollars per year. I mean, this is about half a percent of all uh, military expenditure worldwide. So we could really um, gain from that.